So yeah, uh, so we're picking up with this uh, topic of the sedes doctrinae, which is Latin for seats of scripture, or uh, seats of doctrine, sorry. Um, That is the foundation uh, from which these articles of faith are drawn in the scriptures. Uh, I'll, I'll start by saying that this is kind of like what we call proof passages. So you say, well, what's a proof passage? Something that proves the point of uh, what you're trying to teach uh, in the scriptures. What do the scriptures clearly say? So we have clear texts and then uh, texts that are maybe a little more obscure at first. And so the clear texts illuminate the obscure text. So this is, this is a field of uh, theology called hermeneutics. It's just how you read the Bible. The, the Bible interprets the Bible itself. Um, so these proof passages are, are kind of a helpful thing. I, I was asking my, I'm in a pastor's group um, on Signal, and I was asking a few of them. I said, do you guys have a list of all of the Lutheran proof passages, all of the Lutheran sadist doctrina? And a friend of mine posted a picture of the Bible. <laughs> and he said, here. <laughs> uh, so I was like, okay, that's, I get it. But do you have this? So we, we looked around, and then we found um, a, a couple of, uh, of these sort of things, verses that are kind of the staple, the, the ones that we keep returning to that are clear. For example, on baptism, 1 Peter 3, very clear. Uh, and it's something we can go to time and time again. The, the point of this is, as we're coming off of the study of Lu- the Lutheran approach to the outreach, um, I want to talk to you about how to communicate uh, with one another and to other people, to your own children, to people in your family. And that these things are going to arise in conversation. Uh, people are just going to naturally ask you, right? And the opportunities are going to present themselves. And so what I wanted to do is there are many, many proof passages for these things. We draw this from all the scriptures. My goal is to draw it from the top three of the verses. You might think that's too little. And other of you might think that's too many verses. But... Uh, so if you're going to learn one of the verses, I would, and you don't know these, I would start with the first verse, right? Number one. Uh, memorize that. Keep that in mind. Mark it in your Bible. And then when the opportunity comes, uh, you can share that verse. You can speak it and say, hey, this is what the Bible clearly says. Uh, then you have these other verses to kind of back it up as well. But this is uh, the point of it. So again, there's so many places to go in the scriptures for all of these articles of faith. But I'm just... Uh, in, uh, drawing from the three most common and the three uh, strongest and clearest passages, and then um, just to give something that's manageable and understandable uh, for you. Um, Yeah? This reminds me of like like, 80 to 100 years ago, the Missouri Senate brief statement. They call it brief statement, which is a really good statement, but it it didn't seem so brief to me, but they definitely threw out these passages here. Yeah. So you're like, what? 80 years later and making it even briefer trying to... <laughs> right, a, a briefer statement. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a very good thing. We, we need to... We have to have a common um, understanding of these verses together. So th- my point here is to show you how to show your work, right? You guys know the answers. I, I preached about this a long time. I think it was three years ago on... Um, on giving a, a reason for the defense, or giving a defense for the reason of, of the hope that you have in you. And that a lot of Christians, especially members of the congregation, are able to draw the conclusion, but they don't know how to get there, right? So it's like a, a kid in, like, or it's like me doing math work. Um, you just see the number seven. It's like, that's the right answer. How did you get there? I have no idea. I just, I wrote it down. Uh, or I copied this person's homework or something. Um, That's wrong, right? So it's the right answer, but you don't know how to get there. So my point with this is to show you how to get there. So you say, yes, yeah, I believe baptism saves me. And I say, well, why? That's what I grew up believing. Okay, that's not a good enough answer. That's true, but it's not enough. That's not good enough. Uh, Well, my parents taught me. That's good, but again, not an answer. Uh, Okay, Acts chapter 2. First Peter 3, Matthew 28. There you go. So the point is to, that you should be able to, to show your work. And, and this is going to come out. So my advice is don't get overwhelmed if three seems to be too many verses. Just take the number one verse, memorize it, and go from there. Uh, and if it seems to be too little, then 
uh, then read the scriptures, and you're going to find this uh, through, throughout it all. So uh, we're picking up where we left off last week. Last week, we covered the scriptures. We talked about Holy Scripture itself. Um, and the top verse I gave for that was 2 Timothy 3.16, what the scriptures say of themselves. And then the efficacy of the word, that is the power of God's word. Does God's word have power, or do we have to make it powerful? Is God's word um, uh, able to do what it says, or is God's word effective only if we act upon it? And the answer was no, God's word is powerful apart from you, right? Even before you ever existed. And it's always going to remain powerful even without you. So nothing of what we can do can cause God's word to be more effective or make it come alive. Jesus says, the words I speak are spirit and life. Period. They are. That is that. Uh, regardless of, of who's hearing it. Uh, the, the, the reason I was kind of uh, emphasizing that last week is because there's this idea that we can sort of make the Bible more effective or we can enliven the word of God. And you can't. You can't. They are spirit. They are life. You, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Okay, so, so that was on the efficacy of the word. And then we started to talk about law and gospel. And my point here was to say that law and gospel is not a Lutheran paradigm or an idea that we impose into the scriptures. And this is a very wrong, wrong idea. To say that, well, CFW Walther and Luther and, and Chemnitz and all these Lutherans, well, they're just kind of of this German understanding and they like to categorize things and then they put things under law and things under gospel and that's it. And then, uh, and well, the law is really hard to hear and so we like the gospel more. So let's always end with the, law, with the gospel and the gospel is good. Okay, fine, if that's what you do. How did you get there? Why does the gospel predominate? Right? Why is there such a thing as law and gospel? My point here is that the law and the gospel are not concepts that we have imposed into Scripture, but it is the very substance of Scripture. It's what we draw out of Scripture. It's what the Scriptures are. Everything in the Scriptures are either law or gospel. It's, it, it's, it's either uh, uh, um, saying what man does or saying what God does. If you don't receive or understand this distinction and this difference, then the Bible remains a closed book and it will never make sense to you. It's full of contradiction. Then you'll, you'll be confused as to why Jesus tells the rich man who comes up to him and says, I've done all these things. What, what else do I have to do? Go sell everything. And then he tells another one that your sins are forgiven. And another one that comes to him and says, uh, well, who's my neighbor? And then he says, go and do likewise. How do I inherit eternal life? And you see this happening in the very words of Jesus. This is going to remain confusing to you and seem like contradictions until you truly understand the, long, the gospel. Um, so I want to pick up with this. We, we, I ended kind of abruptly last week. But um, the third best text here is Romans 3. And I'll uh, tell you this. I'll just read it to you. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. Uh, stopped from doing what? Making excuses. Exactly. Stopped from making excuses or justification, saying why you did something. So, again, God doesn't care. The law does not care why you did something. Did you do it? No? Then I don't care. It, it, could, it could be the best reason in the world. But the law says do this and don't do that. It doesn't say try. It says do it. So every mouth, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what does the law bring? Knowledge of sin. But now, there's a change. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now we have some, something else is being introduced. And it's not, the, um, uh, it's not the knowledge of sin. There's a righteousness of God. Uh, 
has been manifested apart from the law. So we have something else. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, which is an atonement, a, a sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins and it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So then you say, well, when you read the scriptures and you see things uh, talking about what you ought to do and showing you sin, uh, there's a knowledge of sin by the words that are spoken in the scriptures. Well, what do we call that? And the Bible says we call that the law. And then there's this other thing that's apart from that that says, well, righteousness comes by not, not by, by doing anything, but by faith. Faith is the opposite of doing something. It's believing. It's, it's simply receiving. That's not your action. It's receiving the action of another. And then it says, well, this is another thing. This is the righteousness of faith. So already here we have a distinction. And Paul is drawing this distinction and almost dividing the scriptures into things that bring the knowledge of sin and things that lead to the righteousness of God through faith. Okay? That's the first uh, verse we're, we're going to see there. Second is Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. Again, uh, the, the context here in Galatians is that Paul um, is dealing with the Judaizing Christians, the ones who are saying that you need to observe the laws of Moses to be saved. So one of the big issues was circumcision. Do we still need to be circumcised? And the, some of the Christians were saying, the Judaizers were saying, yes, you need to be circumcised and that's, you need to fulfill that work and then you can be a Christian. And Paul says, no. No, for, for, uh, that's, that's the point of his, the whole epistle of Galatians. In fact, all of, all of the epistles that Paul writes, he's pretty happy. Uh, the one to the Ephesians, he's the happiest. Right? He's very happy and he loves the church there. The one to the Galatians, he's not that happy. He's actually really angry with them. Uh, he says, uh, grace to you, right? And it's a very short introduction. And then he says, I'm astonished. I'm done, dumbfounded how quickly you have given up the gospel. And then this is when he says, look, even if an angel from heaven told you something different, you let him go to hell. Let him be anathema, right? So, so Paul is pretty upset. And the reason he's upset is because people are mixing works with the law, uh, the law with the gospel, and they're preaching this to the church that he brought up in, in Galatia. I, I'll put it this way. I would be very angry if that happened to me. It would be like I go on vacation for two weeks. And I come back to Zion. And I find out that uh, the, the guest preacher pastor has been telling you and convinced you guys that you need... <laughs> He's right there. Yeah. Uh, uh, that he convinced you guys and said, you guys need works for salvation and he's just drilling this into you and then I come back and I preach a sermon you guys say well no no I don't I don't that's not it I, I would be livid I would be livid I would lose my mind like what, what are you guys doing what, what have I been preaching for eight years and you gave it up for one Sunday so uh, so you can understand Paul's Paul's frustration he comes back so then you get this glorious text in uh, Galatians chapter 3 where he just then rips them apart and says, I'm going to make this as clear as I can for you. And I'm just going to put it in the most fundamental, basic, clearest, plainest language. Here you go. And this is what he says. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things in the book of the law and do them. So, Paul is already, he's implying something. He says, well, everybody's under the curse because he's implying that nobody has kept the law. Well, the law is a threat if you do this, if you don't do this. But he's already implying, well, you guys haven't done this. So, cursed be everyone. You guys are actually not blessed by trying to be better. In fact, this is a curse. 
you're under a curse. Now, it is evident, it is obvious, he's saying, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by, not the law, but by faith. And he draws this distinction again, again, that he's saying in Romans. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. How do you keep, let me pause there, how do you keep a law? How do you keep a command? If I say, raise your hands, how do you keep the command? Raise your hands. Okay. Um, you can't, if I say, raise your hands, it makes no sense to say, okay, I, I believe you. I, I didn't ask for you to believe anything. I, I told you to do something and you, you didn't do it. The, the way you keep a law is by doing. Now, if I said, um, uh, I'm going to give you $1,000 today. Um, what do you do? You, you, can't, you can't say uh, raising your hands or doing an action won't do anything. You just simply believe, right? You believe what I said, right? So the way you keep uh, the law is by an action. The way you keep a promise is by believing the promise. So you, you, could, you, could, uh, you could say, well, you're lying. No, I don't believe you're going to do that. Okay, that's fine. I'm still going to do it. But um, the way you... The, the way you reject a promise is by, by not believing it. And the way you accept the promise is by believing it. Right? So Paul is making this distinction and he says, well, the law, uh, the law is not of faith. The, law in the, uh, the laws of actions and uh, the, uh, the, the righteousness is through faith. Um, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Um, this, now, if you want, you can read the whole section in its entirety. Uh, really, this should be all of Galatians 3. But this is, this is the... It, it, I have to pick a few verses uh, to show you. But the whole chapter is really kind of the thing. But this is the highlight of it. Uh, so how are the Gentiles saved? The Gentiles are not saved by works of the law. Rather, the promise comes to the Gentiles as well because Christ was made a curse on, the, on, on his cross. And we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Uh, so, so Paul is making this distinction and he says, look, if, if you're going to rely upon the law, then you're cursed and you're going to be damned forever. Uh, if you uh, pr trust that Christ was made the curse for us and removed the curse from us, then you will live forever. That's his point. Uh, look at, okay, so this is talking about the distinction between faith and works and the law and the gospel. Well, now the... The number one text I want to show you here is 2 Corinthians 3, 4, uh, 4 through 11. And this is the, the text, the proof passage we go to when we talk about the preeminence of the gospel. Okay, so we have the law and the gospel in scriptures, and, and, and we see this, we faith and works. Well, how do we know which one uh, has the final word? Right? What, how do we know that the... the, the the law is the thing that doesn't have the final say, or the gospel is the thing that has the final say. I alluded to this at the beginning. I don't want you to think that this is just some personal preference of Lutherans to say, well, the law is kind of mean and difficult, and so we just don't want to end the sermon or the service or anything with the law. Let's end it with the gospel. Or that, um, I don't know, that... Uh, uh, we, we just like the, the, the gospel because it sounds nicer. Um, no, the reason we do that is because of the scriptures. They, they reveal it to us. Hold on. So, so they re reveal this uh, to us. So 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 11 says this. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Confidence. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Uh, and, and now the us here, he's talking specifically about the apostles and pastors. But our sufficiency is from God, 
who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. The ones who administer and give out the new covenant. What is the new covenant? This is the new covenant in my blood. Uh, the, the very sacraments. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. So here, he's making a distinction between the law and the gospel by using different words. Uh, letter and spirit. Uh, and I, I want you to understand here, he's, he's using these terms kind of figuratively. He's not saying, which the Pentecostals will do this. They'll say, well, the Bible is the letter and the Spirit is my feelings and, and the, the, the Holy Spirit speaking directly to me. That's not what Paul is saying here. In fact, he defines this later on in the next verses. He says, now, if the ministry of death, so you have to keep this in mind, um, we have the letter and the spirit. And then this is the ministry of death. <clears throat> it is called the ministry of death. Um, if that, it was carved in letters on stone. What is that? The... Law, the Ten Commandments. And that came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So then he says, this is the ministry whoops, of, the, of the Spirit. And he makes this distinction. And he says, was this glorious? Was the ministry of death glorious? Absolutely. It was uh, amazing that uh, Moses' face was radiating. He had to cover it with cloth so that people could, could talk to him. And then he says, but there's something else that's even more glorious. Of, of the two, which one is more glorious? It says, the ministry of the Spirit. Well, then what is that? So he says, ministry of the Spirit have more, even more glory. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation... Uh, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory, what once had glory, this, has come to have no glory at all. Oh, thanks. Um, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So there is a, uh, something that is greater and more glorious than the law. It's, so think of it like this. Um, the ministry of death as like being a, a really powerful flashlight or something, right? And it's very, very strong. Um, now, uh, this is great, and it's going to look very uh, powerful in the dark. But once the sun comes up, then what? That's useless. This is way useless. I mean, that's way more powerful. So then you just toss it aside. Uh, so this is the point and what he's saying. Yes, this is glorious. Yes, that flashlight is giving light. But compared to the light that is coming in, that is far more glorious and, and far more... Uh, um, there's a preeminence that takes place over it and it drowns it out. Well, he says, well, this is a ministry of the Spirit that is drowning out the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation. So that the law is overtaken by what the Spirit gives. That is righteousness. Um, so th this is then the Sedes Doctrinae when it comes to uh, the gospel uh, predominating, being preeminent over the law. Uh, and, and why we don't mix the two, right, uh, is, is the point here. Again, it's not saying that the law is evil or bad or useless. It, it's good. It's that... Um, uh, there's something has overtaken it, and that is the gospel. Okay, uh, any questions on this, on law and gospel? I just wanted to comment because it was kind of funny. It must be in Galatians from what you said. Since Paul was angry with the Galatians, but uh, he said, well, if they want to circumcise, then oh. they should circumcise themselves and just cut the whole thing <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So if he calls them super apostles, right? Uh, it, it, he says, well, if you guys are going to do these good works, then don't just circumcise. Then just cut the whole thing off and then be super righteous, right? And, uh, and he says, if, if, if works save you, if works count for something, well, then do the greater work than this. 
So, yeah, Paul's being uh, snarky there, and it's great. Uh, he, uh, yeah, the Lutheran confessions do this. Uh, my friend, uh, Pastor Hans Feeney, gave a paper titled uh, The Use of Snark in the Lutheran Confessions. It's really good. I was, oh, it's, it was so fascinating. So, anyway, um, okay, I want to move to the next thing, the Seis Doctrinae on the Holy Trinity. So the reason I, I want to talk about this is, one, you should know this for yourself, but two, you're going to have a lot of people, probably already, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons who you've crossed paths with. And they're going to say what? They're going to deny the Trinity. They said, no, there, there's no Trinity. Oh, well, even the Jews. They'll say, no, God is one. There's no, tri- there's no triune God. Um, there's no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is wrong. Uh, and then they'll claim to hold on to the scriptures and say the scriptures defend us and not you. Um, so we, we know, we believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, but one God. Not parts of God, not modes of God, not a separate entities or different hierarchies within God, but each fully God and yet one this is the point. So where do we get this in the scriptures? It's all, it's, the scriptures are replete with this. But the first text I want to go to is the very beginning. Uh, Genesis 1. Uh, yeah, 1-1. One, one. And then in addition to that, uh, 26 through 27. So I'm kind of cheating there. But, um, so the third best verse to go to is Genesis 1. The very beginning of the Bible. Uh, and it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's it. They say, well, how is that triune God? What does that mean? How, does, how is that triune? Well, in the Hebrew, Elohim. Uh, whenever you see the... Uh, this is at the end of a word, right? So you have the word... And then that's the uh, ending. Whenever you see the im in uh, Hebrew, that's plural. So Elohim is plural, gods. And then the next word is created. And so in, in, you have to have verb and subject agreement. Um, the verb there, bara, is used when you have one person creating. It's singular. So that's the, 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 the subject that it takes. So already, God created, Barashith, bara Elohim, right? Bara Elohim is the work of one, and then the name of God is plural. I want to show you, the reason I'm adding these other verses, 26 and 27, is to show you that I'm not cheating here. I'm not just kind of forcing that into the text. Look down to verse 26 and 27. This is very clear. Then God said... God, singular, or or here, plural, uh, Elohim, said, let, singular, us, plural, make, singular, again, mankind in our, plural, image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, over the livestock and over the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own singular image in the you would imagine it to say well let us in God's images but he says no in our image singular so this is the thing is we read this and we kind of gloss by this so quickly and say oh yeah that makes sense but if you were grading this you would fail (laughs) you would fail the kid who turned this in and and writes this way about their vacation or something you say no that that's that's bad grammar but no, this is, these are the scriptures, and it's doing this deliberately. It continues. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the point is that the bara Elohim is deliberate. It's a deliberate thing. And this is already in the first chapter of the Bible that we see the plurality and the singularity of God in one verse already. I want to show you another text that shows this. Again, it's, it's all throughout. But Question regarding... Yeah. So, let's pretend we're Moses or whatever going on in that, or Jacob or whatever. 
would they have questioned when somebody was saying those kind of things to each other? Like Jacob and Abraham and Isaac? Yeah, would they... Like, l- question, because they were speaking in Hebrew. Yeah. Would they have been like, oh, that... I think so, yeah. I, you know, no, I, actually, 100% so. I think um, they're, they're very aware of what is being said and what's being written. They know how language works. And we know that because they don't write this way all the time, right? They don't write about the kings talk, uh, you know, going back and forth uh, between plural and singular, or they don't speak of themselves in that way. Um, so I, I think it's very it was a clear to them. Mm-hmm. And so then, at that time, you have people repeating that exact sentence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then confused. So would they have had doctrine practices? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. In fact, it probably would have been a lot easier for them uh, because what, one of the difficulties today is that we have so much of the Scripture, so much of God's Word, and we have to mine through it. There, it's very clear and simple. Like, the, the, the question, we brought this up last week, was did Adam and Eve understand the promise of the Messiah? Yes. 100% they did. Yeah. Because in chapter 4, she gives birth to Cain, and she says, I've begotten a man, the Lord. Again, I told you that the Hebrew doesn't say, with the help of the Lord. She just says, I've begotten a man, the Lord, Yahweh. Um, and so she thinks already that the, babe, the first baby, well, you just told me one of my seeds is going to save me. I just gave birth to the baby. This, this must be it. It's over. And then it's a long, long, long time. But the, the point is it's through this, uh, the, the, these descendants. So yeah, I, I, th- I think these, uh, the saints of Scripture are meditating on the words of God and they're holding on to them as he's revealed them. Um, we, we have this in the Scriptures, the commands of God, when they're being written, don't add one word or subtract, not even the yod or tittle. I mean, the little dot on the I, don't take that away from the, from the words that I say. Not even that. The smallest uh, uh, part of writing. So th- this is the point, is that they're holding on to these words, and I, they understand 100%. We can understand this, right? And I don't, I've learned Hebrew. Um, so my question is, why did the Jews then? If, the, if that, because that's the Torah. Yeah. So why are the Jews... Not. They've blinded themselves. Yeah, they, they, like in, the, in unbelief. The Jewish commentators like say, "Oh, well, this is a royal we." Yeah. But then I ask, why then don't the rest of the scriptures in the Torah use the, the royal we when talking about all the other kings? Right. In the book, only this type of verbiage is used. Yeah. In the name of God. Yeah, and and so yeah, there, there is there is something confusing here, and you you have to say, okay, I see this singular, I see this plural. Well, then what do I do? Um, but what, what the Jews will do is they're going to pick one that makes sense. And they're going to say, well, God is one. Okay, we're, we're holding to that. Whereas Christians, we say, well, God said both of them. They're both equally inspired by him. Mm-hmm. And so the problem isn't that they contradict each other. The problem is they contradict me. <laughs> so I'm the one who has to go, <laughs> right? My, my little mind has to go away. And the script, I'm going to let God speak for himself. So if God chooses to speak this way, then he knows what he's doing. Right? So, I, again, it, this is woven into the entire w- fabric of the Old Testament. I mean, even the doxology um, uh, from, from Numbers, uh, the Aaronic benediction, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make his faith. What is, what's going on? You think it's just randomly three times that it's just happening? No. Um, I, I want to show you, I, again, I can go through this, through the scriptures, but I want to show you the second best text, which is Isaiah 6, 3. And we sing this in church every Sunday. This is called the Sanctus, which is just Latin for holy. It says, and they, again, uh, Isaiah's in the temple. He had just uh, come in. There's uh, the angels. God appears to him. The cherubim are there covering their face, covering their feet before God. And they're, they're crying out to one another. And this, this is the words that they are saying. They were calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Again, I want to slow this down. 
The angels are crying this out. They have good understanding of who God is. So, in fact, when we sing the Sanctus in church, this is why we will never get rid of it. Never will. This is the song of the angels. The an- we didn't write this. The angels sang it uh, uh, to God. And they're singing it to each other. The word there in, for holy, this translation is not good. Right? It says, holy, comma, holy, comma, holy, comma. Um, the, the word there in Hebrew is kadosh, which is holy one. So really, each one of those is kind of like a complete sentence. The holy one, exclamation point. The holy one, exclamation point. The holy one, exclamation point. Right? So it's saying, there are three holy ones. And then what's the verb that follows right after that? Is. Is. When it should say, are. If there's one holy one, two holy ones, three holy ones, well, then they are the holy ones. But it says, no, there's a holy one, there's a holy one, there's a holy one. One plus one plus one is, is. One. one. And he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his singular glory. Again, if you keep reading the context, can I borrow someone's Bible? Um, The context here in chapter 6, if you keep going, after the angel touches his lips with the coal, verse 8 says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Singular. Who will go for us? Plural. In the same sentence, in the same question. Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, go, uh, say to, uh, and say to this people. Uh, he continued. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in, in the Sanctus, we're confessing the Trinity, uh, who, who God is. Okay, let's look at, finally, Matthew 28, 19. This is the top verse. So this is going to be the clearest um, uh, text on this, if there's any confusion. Because now the scriptures, and this is coming from the lips of Jesus, and it's not just a description, right? So in Genesis, we have the words of Moses. In Isaiah, we have the words of the angels, word of man, word of Moses. And then now we have a word of God, from God himself. So there's three testimonies to this, uh, the top three that I'm giving to you. Uh, Matthew 28, this is at his ascension. Uh, He's ascending before uh, the disciples. And then he says these words, Therefore go, uh, or going, as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that's wrong, right? What should it say? If you're going to be grammatically correct. In the names of, yes. So you have three names. In the names of the Father, the Son, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But he says, no, the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a beautiful text. I mean, now here, what, the, what Jesus does is in one sentence, and so clearly, succinctly, he summarizes all of his teaching. Did he talk about the Father? Yeah. Did he talk about the promised Holy Spirit? Yeah. Did he talk about himself being God? Yes, yes, yes. And then here in Matthew 28, he summarizes all of his teaching and says, well, you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he puts it all together. So all of the scriptures, you say, well, who is this? Wait, did they know there was a plurality to God and a singularity to God? Did Moses know that? Yeah, he did. Did he, did he know exactly that it was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Maybe he couldn't put it into those words. But he knew that something was beyond uh, uh, comprehension here. Uh, the same thing here. They're saying, Holy One, Holy, Holy, Holy One is. Uh, the Lord bless the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. So there's, they understand that there's this, tr- uh, in, in Latin it's called, or the, in Greek it's called the tris, tris hagion. Like the, the, the triple holy, the triple holy one. Uh, so there's this idea in the scriptures and they, they have this. But here they have the very names of the three holies. <laughs> The three holy ones. And yet there aren't three holy ones. There is one. Okay. Uh, that's another text you can go to. So when, when people say, well, the, the Holy Trinity is kind of something that the Council of Nicaea decided to, to, <laughs> to invent and believe in. And Christians just later said, well, we want to 
be diverse. No, it's from the verse 1 of what, Jesus, of, of what the scripture said to the very last words that Jesus said before he ascended. It's all throughout the scriptures. Yeah? Um, if you have a little bit of time, maybe you could explain why we don't use 1 John 5, 8 as a proof passage for the Trinity. 1 John 5, 8. Um, Yeah, okay. I'll have to do more, uh, more research on this because I, I know the basic idea here. I don't know the details. So the, 1 John 5, says, starting at verse 6, says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And this is referring to the water and blood point from his side when he was stabbed with a spear. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the... The truth, for there are three that testify, the spirits and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Uh, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. Okay, so there are some translations, or there, there was one, I think it was, I don't know if it's the Vulgate. I, I don't want to misspeak here, but I know that there is a translation that says, um, the, the three that testify are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the, that's the Texas Receptus, the Receptus. Yes. So, yeah, exactly. So there's, there's, different, there's differences here. And um, so some of, the ver- or some of the text will say that. And some of them say... What, what theologians are saying is that the older manuscripts do not have that passage. That it was added later. Uh, and that's been debated for centuries. Okay, the, the spirit, the water, and the blood. Yeah. Uh, and the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, so, yeah, that the, the older texts um, are, are uh, right, you're going to find variances. You're going to find some that say this, and then some that say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Some think that this was inserted into the text or something like that. Um, I, again, I, I got to read more about that, about what, what's going on there. I know the controversy on that. And yeah, it's not a text that we go to to prove the... Yeah, you don't have, you don't use that text as a, uh, as a seat of doctrine. Right. And the reason why is because, like, if you bring that up into a, in, a, in a discussion with the Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons, they'll immediately point out, well, that's from, you know, the older manuscripts don't have that. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good point. The, the Sadist Doctrinae we're going to the clearest uh, uh, passages, and we're also going to the passages that are not disputed, exactly. right? So there are uh, texts in the scriptures that people will dispute because there's variances or textual variances. Um, and I talked about those uh, last, last Sunday uh, uh, when it came to the scriptures, uh, that the majority of these variances are not significant. 99.9% are, are insignificant. They're just word order or phonetic spelling. But um, that 0.1% are significant, and this is one, right? What about Jesus' baptism when he sees the That's another one. And the Father speaks. Yes. So, again, we can, we can go to so many of these texts, but that was one I was debating to say, well, where do we put this? Uh, but Jesus' baptism, you have already the, um, uh, the, the Son who is in the water, uh, the Spirit who comes in the form of a dove, and then the Father speaking from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. You see this also in the creation of the world. Uh, you see that uh, the Father uh, is speaking. And then John 1 tells us that the, that the Son was the Word. And then the Spirit was hovering over the waters. Already, uh, you have the, the Trinity in these first verses. Um, so, so yeah, again, it's, it's all throughout the Scriptures, but you're not going to... Um, uh, the, these are the ones that are undisputed and the ones that are kind of uh, uh, staples there. Uh, but yeah, th- that's a really good text to point to as well. Um, yes? I've heard to, the false doctrine that the Spirit is just the power of God. It's not yeah. part of the 
Yeah. Can you provide, beyond Matthew 28, is there anywhere else that specifically disproves that? And I've also heard that looking at pronouns in the Greek doesn't work for that because Greek uses gender for all its pronouns, so you can't tell that it's a person or not when you're looking at Greek pronouns. Hmm. Um, okay. Yeah, so, so the first, uh, regarding the first thing, um, you can look at uh, John 14, 15, and 16. Uh, this is before, this is the night that Jesus is betrayed, and he gives it a deep theological uh, excursus on the Holy Spirit. And there he, he talks about the Holy Spirit, whose job it is to convict the world of sin, uh, to judge the world, all these things. So he, he talks about the Holy Spirit as God, as, as a person. So really, those three chapters are the fullest uh, teaching that Jesus gives on the Spirit himself. So I, I would turn there. Uh, regarding the second part, no, I, I don't think that's the case. We'll actually talk about this when we get to the divinity of Christ uh, on the first uh, Sedes Doctrinae uh, that I'll, I'll show to you. So, yes? Oh, uh, for Numbers, yeah, it's Numbers chapter 6, and it's the Aaronic benediction. So we say that at the very end. Actually, that was Martin Luther who added that to the service. So um, that doesn't come up in the liturgical services until the Reformation. Uh, but Luther thought it was so beautiful that he, he added that. But the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, for, oh, um, let me think, and I can send you something. I, I know we're delayed. I know we have the, uh, the Sunday school uh, going on, but let me move to uh, number three here at least um, on the divinity of Christ. So the best text here is going to be John ten thirty, um, and here Jesus simply says, "I and the Father are one." Um, Regarding the divinity of Christ, some are going to say that uh, Jesus is not God, but rather a creature, uh, one who works with God, one who's after God, but who is not God. And um, when I, I, I went to a Jehovah's Witness service uh, when I was, I think I was like 18. I was taking like a religious studies class and we had to uh, attend a different church or religion. And so I went to the Jehovah's Witness one, and it was, a, it was a, um, yeah, it was weird. Uh, and then uh, um, I talked to, the, to their pastor afterward, and he, he found out I was a Christian. I'm a Lutheran. And then he's, his argument was, well, you see, Jesus prays to the Father. This was his argument. Jesus prays to the Father. Therefore, he's not the Father. How, how can you pray to yourself? So he can't be the Father. Um, and so that's, that's his point. Uh, the other text I'll show you as, as we work our way through this. Um, so at, at the time, I was kind of concerned. I'm like, oh, that's a great argument. And no, it's not. But, uh, <laughs> um, but John 10, 30, uh, here Jesus says very plainly, I and the Father are one. And I, I talked to Jehovah's Witness later, many years later, and I brought up this text, and he said, yeah, they're, they're one in purpose, or one in will. And I said, no, that's not what it says. I said, uh, where did you get the purpose and will from? You added that. And the Bible says not to add that, right? Not to add anything. So what does it say? It says, I and the Father are one. So what's the verb in this text? Are, to be, right? We are what? We are one. Um, Jesus himself says this. Uh, the, the text in John 10, I want to show you. This is fascinating. The, the whole section, we'll end with this. Um, and then I'll show you the other two texts later. This, Jesus saying, I and the Father are one, is in the context of the good shepherd. And I want to show you here in these verses. Um, So he's saying, I am the good shepherd in verse 14. I know my own and my own. This is the most 
gorgeous text. I mean, this is my favorite text in all the, the, uh, of, of Jesus' dis- discourses. I know my own, my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, for you. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. <laughs> Again, the tenses. I have them, but they will listen. What's going on there? Um, I've preached on that before. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Uh, Then he goes on, and the people accuse him of having a demon for saying this. They're saying he's insane. Uh, And then he says, I told you, and you do not believe uh, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you don't believe me because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And then he says this, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then he says, I and my Father are one. And then he goes on to say, um, where does he say this? Oh, hold on, I lost it. Follow um, him. Okay. Uh, I think. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So. So. Yeah. Verse twenty-eight. I, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand, he says. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So whose hand is it? And then he says, I and my Father are one. Right? So he's talking about two hands holding the people, holding his sheep. And he says, well, it's the Father's hands. No one can take it from his hand. Well, they're in my hand. Nobody can take them from my hand. Oh, yeah, I and the Father are one. It's one hand. And yet at the same time, it's, it's the two hands. So that, that's the context there. So when Jesus drops that, then they, they lose their minds. Uh, the Jews try to kill him. Um, we're going to look again at John, uh, another text in John, which is John chapter 8. Um, again, we'll pick up here next week. Let me turn off the recording here.